Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. President Trump is going to declare widespread opioid abuse a public health emergency today, but he will not make additional federal money available to fight the epidemic. The opioid epidemic has emerged as one of the nation's most pressing public health matters, killing more than 64,000 Americans last year. This falls short of declaring a national emergency, which would have given states access to funding from the Federal Disaster Relief Fund. Trump's presidential commission on the crisis had recommended that action, and Trump indicated in August, he would follow that recommendation. The opioid crisis is an emergency, and I'm saying officially right now it is an emergency. It's a national emergency. We're going to spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money on the opioid crisis. The public health emergency lasts 90 days and can be renewed indefinitely. Joining us is Richard Ostness, a professor at the University of Kentucky School of Law. Richard, what's the result of this declaration of public health emergency? What happens next? Well, it's, it's hard to say what ultimately will happen. It's a, a, a good first step. Uh, it uh, comes a, a little late in the game. This has been going on for at least 15 years, but it is nice that the fe- federal government is finally um, taking it seriously. Richard, how much uh, more would would be be done if the president had gone further and declared a national emergency? Well, it sounds like uh, the states would have been able to apply for uh, money to help with uh, opioid addiction, and certainly it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of time to uh, to make a dent in that in that problem. Richard. Would there be any downside to declaring a national emergency besides the amount of funding? Well, I don't see any downside. Uh, it, I suppose you could, you could argue that it's not an emergency like a flood or, a, or an earthquake or something like that, you know, that it's really uh, a, a long-term, very serious social problem. So it isn't the sort of thing that a few hundred million dollars at, a, at, at one fell swoop is, is going to help much. Well, let's talk a little bit about the things this actually will do. So if I understand it correctly, we're talking about wider access to telemedicine services, uh, speeding up uh, the hiring process uh, to get more people in place who can, who can deal with this problem, lets uh, uh, local governments repurpose some funds. Uh, which of those steps, if any, are going to you know, potentially have a, a significant dent in this problem? Well, probably none of none of them will have a significant uh, dent or make a significant dent. I mean, the, the trouble is there are millions of people who are addicted, and it's it's going to take a huge uh, commitment of resources to um, to deal with that problem. And I think it's probably beyond the capability of the states to do it, at least by themselves. Uh, you know, the trouble is that that we tend to attack problems of this sort piecemeal. So, for example, a few years ago, it was shut down the pill mills, um, and so a lot of effort was focused in that direction and, and was largely successful, but it didn't really cure the, 
the overall problem. People just turn to other drugs like heroin uh, and uh, and other sources of supply, and uh, so the problem wasn't really uh, alleviated very much. Richard, does there have to be a comprehensive legislative package from Congress with a dedicated stream of funding, or are there other ways to approach this? Well, I think that that uh, would be a good idea, and perhaps it could be the foundation for uh, an overall comprehensive program. I mean, it can't be totally federal, but um, whatever um, long-term solution uh, there is, it, it's going to require a lot of a lot of money. So the federal government certainly has an important role to play in, in that respect. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, it can uh, try to uh, regulate the drug companies, uh, who are at least a part of the source of the problem, uh, and uh, for focus on them. Uh, that might help some, too. But it's uh, a, a very, very complex uh, problem, and there's probably no one particular thing that's going to be the solution. It's going to be a multitude of, of, of efforts, uh, and, and it's going to be a long-term um, project as well. Richard, don't we only have about a minute left right, right now, but you mentioned that, that it, it had taken the federal government a long time to get to this point. It's been going on for 15 years. Uh, should we be uh, uh, casting blame not just at, at the Trump administration, but at the Obama administration for not moving more quickly on this? Well, I think, uh, I mean, there are certain parts of the federal government, the um, um, certain U- U.S. attorneys have been pretty aggressive in going after the drug companies, uh, uh, bringing criminal proceedings uh, against them. Uh, so it's not that the government hasn't done anything, but it's sort of sad and ironic that Congress just, uh, uh, not just, but uh, several months ago, passed uh, legislation that greatly reduced the drug the DEA's uh, enforcement powers against drug companies, and it was passed unanimously, I might add, uh, and so- promptly signed by the president, who was President Obama at the time. So they seem to uh, go. They seem to be ambivalent about how they want to approach the problem. President Trump is going to declare widespread opioid abuse a public health emergency today, but there's also a wave of government lawsuits where states, counties, and cities have sued opioid makers and distributors. There's also a federal criminal investigation into Purdue Pharma's marketing of the opioid painkiller OxyContin. And Insys Therapeutics founder John Kapoor and six other former executives have been charged with conspiracy to commit fraud by bribing doctors to prescribe the company opioid pain drug. Our guests are Richard Ausnes, professor at the University of Kentucky Law School, and Leo Belateski, professor at Northeastern University Law School. Leo, let's start with the government lawsuits. What's the legal basis of the suits? Well, there's a number of legal theories, um, you know, basically fraudulent marketing and, and, and a lot of consumer protection rules that are alleged to be violated. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, these lawsuits, in my view, are, you know, somewhat late to the late to the punch. Um, you know, the from a public health perspective, the the crisis now is driven not by pharmaceutical drugs. And although certainly industry practices deserve a lot of scrutiny, um, you know, I, I doubt that these lawsuits will make much of a dent in the current crisis as it exists today. Richard, let me ask you about this criminal investigation into Purdue Pharma. Uh, What do we know uh, based on either the civil lawsuits or 
or uh, other you know, news reports about the allegations against Purdue and how hard will it be for prosecutors to prove any sort of criminal wrongdoing? Well, um, as I understand it, uh, the basis for the, for these uh, criminal proceedings is that the uh, drug company misrepresented the uh, efficacy of the drug, saying it would last 12 hours, <clears throat> when in fact it rarely did. Uh, that this is in part due to the fact that it's sort of front-loaded, so you get most of the, or a large part of the opioid uh, analgesic effect early in the in that 12-hour period, and it just sort of tapers off to practically nothing by the end. So that means people would start taking it, uh, taking a new dose sooner rather than later. Uh, and, and it's alleged that uh, Purdue uh, had its sales reps misrepresent this uh, to doctors, uh, and, and uh, so this is largely the best. The, the interesting thing is it's uh, sort of like Groundhog Day. They were uh, pled guilty to essentially the same charges in 2007 and were fined a substantial amount of money, and it looks like they're back at it again. And, Leo... Purdue said that that its misconduct that it pleaded guilty to was only from 1995 through 2001, and then it stopped, and they regret what they did. Is there proof that uh, that you've seen or that you know of that the feds have that it's still going on? I'm not, you know, I would not want to comment on whether or not there's proof. I, I don't know the case closely enough. Um I think that, you know, another aspect of this is uh, basically the allegation that Purdue misrepresented the risk of misuse and addiction, uh, which was for these long-release um, formulations was supposed to be lower, and it, and it appears that perhaps it wasn't lower, and, and these drugs were uh, made out to be safer than, than they were in fact. Um, but, you know, certainly um, there may have been continued uh, wrongdoing on the part of some representatives who continued to essentially make claims about uh, the medication that were not, uh, were not rooted in, in, in the evidence. Richard, what is the fact that, that there might be ongoing wrongdoing? Uh, tell us about that earlier plea agreement. I mean, usually, uh, I think, plea agreements have provisions in them that try to make sure that the uh, defendant doesn't doesn't repeat the behavior. Uh, it, can we infer or can we imagine that maybe that, that uh, agreement wasn't tough enough on Purdue? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. There, I'm sure there was a memora- memorandum of agreement that's uh, – and the, uh, I think the – uh, interesting aspect of this, and I'm, I don't know the answer, is is how long it was supposed to last. It's not necessarily forever. So uh, once the scrutiny was off, they may have reverted back to uh, what they were doing before. At least that seems to be what the government is alleging. Leo, there are all kinds of uh, problems with the opioid crisis. There's addiction, there's treatment, there's regulatory policy, enforcement, all kinds of different things. Is there one area that you would cite as the most important to handle immediately? And you have about 40 seconds here. Sure. I think, uh, you know, first, stop people from dying when they overdose. So making sure that people are revived and receive help 
and that, you know, moving upstream, making sure that people have access to adequate and evidence-based drug treatment. Those are the two top priorities to uh, sort of bend the curve right now. Richard, do you want to uh, mention your top priority in your mind? Well, I'm not sure what that would be, but I I would say that the uh, litigation, the civil litigation that you spoke of earlier, is probably not going to be uh, much of a, a much of a solution. Uh, oh. It might enrich state governments, but I don't know if it's going to do very much to uh, alleviate the opioid crisis. Thank you both for being on Bloomberg Law. That's Richard Ausnes, a professor at the University of Kentucky School of Law, and Leo Boletsky, professor at Northeastern University Law School. Coming up on Bloomberg Law, a federal judge has rejected a request from 18 states and D.C. to force the Trump administration to resume paying Obamacare subsidies, so-called cost-sharing reduction payments to health insurers. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.